for The Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly. Here's my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And today we're here to discuss the second episode of the second season of NBC's This Is Us. This one was called A Manny Splendored Thing. So I guess a pun. Super punny. <laughs> okay, so the premise of this episode, let's call it the setup of this episode, was gathering all the Pearsons to go check out Kevin's guest shot on his old show, The Manny. They were having the 100th episode, so they had asked him back. I remember just a little bit of The Manny from from the pilot. And did that director always just have it in for him? They had had like this very contentious relationship. And definitely after Kevin had had that big blow up on set, it was way over. <laughs> Yeah, I just remember him being very smug and just not not a great guy. I think it was just that he understood what the show was. I think that the Manny was very like Full House and Charles in Charge and that kind of show. And, you know, Kevin wanted it to be This Is Us. And it just it wasn't a quality show. It was it was silly. It was hijinxy. And he was always pushing for the writing staff to make it, you know, more substantive and more, there's more there, more. And, you know, they just wanted him to take his shirt off every week and to sort of like get with the program that this is just a goofy show. They all just want them to say, Manny, say what? And that's it. They just want that. We had said last week that Kevin really did not get enough of the spotlight in the previous season. And this one definitely used him, I would say, only just like as a skeleton, though, because it put all the characters in the right place to have very different adventures. Well, he had a definite growth moment where he got over himself and Mm -hmm. just just finished the job. Even though he hated what he was doing, with the help of Sophie, he acted like a professional and just just did what was put on him. the diaper, put on the diaper <laughs> yeah. and and did the show. And I liked how they kept flashing over to the talent show for him. And if you just focused on his part of that, where, you know, he had done the Mr. T impression. And if you notice, no one in the audience really laughed. They're all kind of like Mr. T. But one little girl laughed. That was Sophie. Yeah, I, I made that connection. And so, yeah. So then for him, she was always the key. So when he looked around the crowd and he was wearing that really goofy diaper and, you know, the crowd sort of started tittering a little bit. Sophie was like really smiling. He was like, OK, I'm all in. I can do this if she's going to laugh about it. I can do it. So I did appreciate that. I also like that they they did a little back and forth between him and her with like him being so narcissistic and her calling him on it, saying, you know, this is the least attractive side of you and him just like having to own that for a moment. It was almost like, yeah, I know, I know, but I still have to say this stuff, <laughs> you know, I, I feel bad for Kevin in that way, because I do think that some people are just born that way. They have that need for everyone to love him, everyone to be looking at him, everyone to to love what he's doing. And, you know, other people are born with like that, I don't care, you know, like me, don't like me, I don't give a hoot. And it must be very difficult to constantly need such a high level of feedback for Kevin. Well, and it helps people overlook you, for sure. Because uh, they, they'll assume that you're only saying the things that people want to hear or or will keep you in their good graces, or whatever. And this is this is if I understand why Beth kind of wrote him off, like as an unimportant person in her life. And I think 
to because, you know, again, the Manny was like family matters or something just like the dumbest, whatever kind of lame television show you could imagine. So here, you know, you have Beth and Randall who are the consummate professionals. You know, she's an urban planner. You know, here they are doing this difficult, complex work every day. And he's doing that. Manny say what? You know, she just looks down on it like it's just it's just silly. I thought they had a really great moment in this episode where I finally understood a little bit more the relationship between Kevin and Randall. What did you think about the fact that it turned out that Kevin had been the Cyrano in Randall's relationship with Beth, you mean? Because if I understood it correctly, Randall didn't have much game going on. Does that surprise you looking at Randall? He needed some assistance from his smoother brother. Kevin gave it to him. This was a total newsflash to me because I swear in all of season one, I never felt anything other than that uncomfortable tension between them. There was always just this weird Kevin was always pushing him away. So to find out that he was actually responsible and supportive of Randall pursuing Beth and and it was his jokes that Beth fell in love with. That was amazing. I felt like it was the first brother brother moment I really saw. Well, the part of that scene that stood out to me wasn't that part. That part was 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 sweet and all, but the part where those two are just talking. You know, I I haven't seen so much of first season. I just know that that Kevin joked around a lot about Randall's relationship with the mom and just was was not a cool guy most of the time to Randall. But that doesn't prevent him from knowing him inside and out. When they start talking about the adoption and Kevin's Kevin says, you know, my brother only will do will attempt something that he's already sure he can accomplish. That was like, okay, he he's been paying attention this whole time, you know? Yeah, I think that that's a that is a great point that they are able to go to one another as family members and you know, and as an audience, we get to see a, another point of view on that character because, yeah, they have grown up together this entire time. So why wouldn't Kevin know so much about Randall? And that was cool for Beth to be able to, like, glean more insight, even on her own husband, from Kevin. An unlikely source, according to her own previously held opinion. You would have thought. Yeah, but that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Now, Kevin's plot line this week was pretty much just that. Yeah, but I really felt odd about the way that it was handled with the family. How did you feel about the fact that pretty much everyone left? The only people who actually watched the taping was Miguel and the two girls. I thought that was kind of a dick move on everybody else. I mean, I understand that Kate had a miss it and you lose it kind of opportunity. And being in the performing arts, I'm sure Kevin could could sympathize with with that. But then the mom and Toby left and Toby, I understand. On the whole, though, since he had to do that diaper thing, I kind of I kind of think he got off. He would probably feel like he got off good on that one. Wouldn't you think like he didn't want to be diaper guy in front of his family? He didn't plan on being diaper guy in front of his family. I don't know that, you know, this type of scenario is exactly one of those head scratchers about this particular family, because I would say that when you list off all the qualities of the Pearsons, you would say like, oh, they're loyal and loving and supportive of one another. But you can point to a lot of individual scenarios like this where you're like, wait a minute, they didn't actually show up for each other the way that they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, that didn't really work out the way that it was supposed to. So I know that that's just life and maybe that's just very realistic. But um, 
But I really, I felt for Kevin. Like, could he have been really, really hurt that he looked up and realized it was Miguel and his two nieces that were sitting there instead of all the people who had flown to be there? That just seems like holy smokes, right? I mean, his own mom wasn't there for this 100th episode. Yeah. Ah, why was it more important to go see Kate than Kevin? Why do you think? For the mom? Mm-hmm. Well... Okay, you're, you're going to have to fill me in on the background between their relationship a little more. What I got out of that was possibly that she thought that there was no way that Kate could perform without her there, you know, like as a, as a support, you know, like, of course she needs her mom to be there. That's kind of what I got. Okay, I'll take that. But then, and I would say, in addition to that, it's that Rebecca very much felt like that's her gig. Like, that's Rebecca's gig. And even when she, like, started blathering on about her own singing and Kate turned around and was like, oh, you sang? You were a singer one time? Like, oh, what shocking new news. So it was, I think part of it is that Rebecca just can't even stay away. It's like an unhealthy support of Kate's. But it's not really support. I mean, it's not really support. Add up to being supportive. It's very like dance mom esque, you know, where it's like they, the mom has their own dream and they're shoving their kid out there. And it's very much, even if the kid is enjoying it, there's still that kind of like layer of like, this is uncomfortable and awkward because it's very clear that the mom is living way too vicariously through this other person. Right. And it just, that's just not right. I felt like that entire interaction having to do with the mom, like all the preparation for for Rebecca and Miguel coming to their home with, with Toby and Kate was very realistic. I appreciated how she was like, couldn't fold the blanket just right and felt like uh, Toby being like, oh, I'm making pigs in a blanket to get to Miguel because I think he's the key to getting to your mom. That mm. was like, amen, man. Good for you. I definitely feel like that's the kind of stuff that goes on all the time in households. People don't talk about it with others, you know, because you don't want to reveal like all the different things you try to do in order to be likable to someone else. But people do it all the time. So that was a very cool, realistic moment. When I brought up to you that I had found that a lot of people were very divided on Toby, that, you know, it was very 50-50, I found. Some people really love Toby and some people really hate Toby. You had some insight that I just didn't even see. Well, all I all I said was that just because he loves Kate doesn't make him a good guy just automatically. And for some reason, that was like... Whoa, like my mind was blown because it's true. I think I think without any conscious thought, I put together that if you are somebody who, you know, lifts up someone else and you're very you're being, you know, very loving and you say a lot of the right things most of the time, especially to somebody who is very down on themselves and who is struggling with their weight and, you know, would be generally considered like a time in her life when things are not going great for Kate. And, you know, here you have somebody who's willing to come in and love her for who she is. Then I thought, well, then he just must be the perfect guy. But you're right. Like there's so many other parts of him that you're like, well, but he is kind of pushy and he is that whole part where he wasn't willing to lose weight when she really wanted to lose weight and he was kind of sabotaging the situation. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's tough to be in the same house as someone that's intensely trying to lose weight and you don't give a shit. 
you know, you just eat whatever you want. That's impossible really for that other person to coexist with you. And I think especially when you start off on the same page, when you meet at an overeaters meeting and then you're going to be like over there, you know, eating whatever you want. And then it's like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? So things like that, like if I wonder if they were too average sized individuals and, and I looked at the situation, would I say, well, look at what Toby's doing. That's so snotty and crappy. But for some reason, a lot of people stop at like the idea of like, well, we want to be team Kate and he's team Kate. So therefore he must be a good guy. Well, we know from people in our own life that there can be such a thing as a person who enters another person's life who is hurting, right? That they then are able to use that relationship to write their own ship, basically. You know, that person is the right person right then to get them through whatever that rough patch is. But then after the rough patch smooths out, that person may not be the right person to stick around anymore. I agree with you. It makes me a little bit think of The Mist and how we were talking about how how Eve was describing that she was in this really low place. Like, you know, she she had had this horrible experience. Her, her reputation had been ruined. All this stuff. And Kevin had come in like a white knight and picked her up. And then after all these years, you know, sh- her self-esteem was sky high and she was feeling great about herself and very capable. And now, you know, maybe her and Kevin didn't gel anymore so much. Mm -hmm. And so it did make me wonder, like, you know, if Kate did get a handle on her weight, if she did have a have a successful career, if she didn't need to be pushed and she didn't need to be coddled, would Toby be happy with that Kate? Mm -hmm. Or would that be like, "Mm, I don't know this person anymore? That is a great Great, great question, because Toby is just... If it's one of those things, like sometimes I think people are attracted to other people's vulnerability Mm -hmm. and their insecurities. And, you know, if they can be the person that lights up, you know, their face, well, that is a huge yay. If that other person suddenly doesn't need that anymore, uh uh-oh, you know, what does that mean for that relationship? So it was something that I'm just going to kind of keep my eye on throughout the seasons coming up because we know season three is already greenlit and just kind of watch and say like, you know, if do I think Toby is being a good boyfriend or a good fiance or a good support person right now? Or is it just that I want somebody, anybody to support Kate and he happens to be supporting Kate So therefore, I'm drawing this conclusion that he's a great guy. No one wants another person to be alone. And he doesn't beat her or something like that. It's just, you know. No, it's it's not. She probably just deserves more in our in our opinion is is what we're trying to say. I think at the end of the day, she might. And maybe Toby will grow and learn and, and kind of make his own changes in his character. But right now, I can see what the haters are kind of seeing in in terms of, you know, his pushiness and, you know, his self-centeredness, you know, like at the birthday, his need to be everything to Kate was more important than Kate and Kevin celebrating their birthday. And Mm -hmm. he needed to make like a stand about that. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if that was the right time, Toby. And, you know, maybe you should have let the twins have their birthday and and deal with it later. You're kind of the new guy here. Yeah. Well, (laughs) but just period. If it's someone's birthday, is that the time to deal with it? No, no. It's a bad time to use special events to deal with interpersonal issues. I agree. Speaking of interpersonal issues, getting 
blobbed into a special event. Here was Kate going to her very first professional singing gig. Her mom shows up to watch and that seems like, okay, maybe. Then she's got these backhanded compliments for Kate. What did yeah. you think about it? I thought she was being shitty. I mean, the only the only appropriate thing to say was, you did great, period, exclamation point, smile emoji, whatever. Not... No not, tips. No advice. No tips. Right. <laughs> I agree. And I definitely think that... When we got a lot of the talent show flashbacks and we got to see where Kate was feeling really insecure about her voice and really uncertain, a lot of people pointed out that they thought Rebecca was being such a great mom because she took her original first gig dress and then sewed it into a dress for Kate. What did you think about that? It goes back what you were saying a minute ago about living vicariously through the children. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm even going to give you the same outfit I wore so that you can perform the kind of way that I like to perform in my outfit. And let's just see how that goes. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, when people were saying, oh, that's so great, I think about our own kids and I think, no, you know, what would have been so great was for her to say, hey, let's go shopping because I have this, you know, this real great memory and I keep this outfit that I really love in my closet to remind me of my first gig. Why don't we go pick out and you go pick out, you go choose your first outfit so that you can have whatever kind of memories of this event that you want to have. Maybe she would have chosen to wear something completely different, you right. know? It does kind of co-opt that memory. Like they make light of it, I guess. Remember in, in uh, the Mindy Project, right? How Danny's mom wants her to wear her dress for their wedding and it's too much for for mindy to deal with this all this you know pressure like that but i can see now why a bride would resist that even beyond just the fashion impl implications of right. wearing such an old rag <laughs> um it's it's i i need to form my own memories and I'm going to do it in my dress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think that that at first, I, I'll be honest with you, I was so scared that she was going to go up and try on that dress and it was going to be too tight because that was like my my first gut instinct. As soon as she was like, oh, go try it on. I was like, oh, no, it's going to be too tight. It's going to be too tight. And like it won't fit. And it, this is just going to be awful. And she's not going to be able to tell Rebecca that it doesn't fit. And this is going to be terrible. So I was really surprised when, you know, no, the twist was actually that she walks in to show Rebecca the dress and Rebecca's in there, not just singing, but singing the exact song that Kate's going to sing in the talent show. But with flourishes and mm -hmm. embellishments. Yes. And so, honestly, I, I think that Rebecca just takes it all too far. You know, you can have the whole, like, I've walked this walk and I have some experience and I'd like to share that with you, my child. And then there's a really gross, let me dress you up in my clothes. You sing the song I'm going to sing. You know, just uh, that gets really nasty. And Kate completely balks at the whole thing and just decides not to even perform at all. Yeah, and that's too bad. I mean, that's probably a, just a one domino in her cascade of... Uh, lack of confidence, basically, that built her up to the person she is now. Now, there was a liner to Paul that she said to Rebecca post-show that made me feel like, oh, no, I, I don't even know what you're supposed to do with this. When she says to Rebecca, she said, well, Rebecca says, you know, what did I do? And she says, you existed. 
Oh my God. What in the hell are you supposed to do with that? It's very tough coming from your 37-year-old daughter. I mean, that's a very 14-year-old kind of rebuke, right? So, I mean, that would leave me dumbfounded. Like, you just broke all the rules of how to talk to each other. I don't know how to respond to that. I truly wouldn't either, honestly. And that's basically where it was was with Rebecca, where she was like, I don't have anything to say about this. So I feel like, you know, when when it's sort of like who is in the right, was Kate in the right to say something? Was Rebecca in the wrong? Whatever. I feel like it's like all parties sucked here. Everybody (laughs) crossed lines in a serious way. But I really feel like if Kate really felt that way, I I so feel like that's the way it it's made out with Kevin and Randall. Like, what's your problem with me, Kevin? Uh, You exist, Randall. Like, what the frig, you know? Like, it's that same attitude that is there that just, I don't know. It's a real harsh thing that I don't know if all, if, if all families or many families have this type of layer to them where people actually wish other people in the family just weren't even alive. I don't know. It does make you wonder where the intense feelings got built up from. I know we already talked about Toby, but what did you think about Toby's speech to Rebecca at the end of the evening? Well, that's the kind of stuff that would make you like Toby. For whatever his faults are, he is also a person who can define some boundaries and he's not afraid to to make them clear right up front. I loved it. I feel like it's like what every single spouse wants their spouse to say on behalf of them, (laughs) you know, like any family member who were to come behind my back and say anything about me, I hope, you know, you would be the person to say, nah, don't talk to me about it. Like I'm definitely team my spouse, you know, I think that's what like everyone's hopes and dreams are, right? For sure. Like we said, Toby may not be the awesomest guy, but he does have her back right now. Speaking of spouses who are always working on having each other's backs, Randall and Beth had a great episode. I thought they had one of those, you know, things are not going great, but we're still communicating very well kind of arguments that I envy very much because I think that it's part of what makes the show so great and part of it that makes it a little like... Man, I wish everyone in the world would just talk to one another this clearly. Do Randall and Beth have to work so hard every episode to keep their marriage running? I mean, she's like walking around the the back lot at the studio and he's having to chase her down so that they can talk. And that's not an easy way to coexist constantly, you know, so. No, I think this is, we're definitely seeing them in crisis currently. I mean, they're, they're trying to tackle this adoption issue. And, you know, I think that this issue is a very complex subject. You know, the idea of adopting is one thing and then choosing to adopt someone into your family who is already a fully formed older person is a whole nother ball of wax, you know? For sure. And Randall is stuck. He, this was his idea, but it's like he's he sees what could happen because he has two kids that are unspoiled, basically. Well, and two young girls. I mean, that's a big part of it, too. I know that, you know, certainly boys are also abused or exploited or taken advantage of, but young girls tend to be the more sitting ducks for this kind of stuff. So do you think that Beth's Do you think that Randall's concerns about having a person who came in with any type of, as the adoption form listed, like sexual abuse, drug abuse, um, physical abuse come into their home, do you think that that's a fair concern? Absolutely, yes. 
I mean, it's sad that it does come down to that kind of stuff and that prevents kids from being able to be placed in quality homes. But I don't know, man. I guess I just am a normal, simple man. You know, I see the kids that I made and I want to protect them beyond anybody else. Absolutely. And I know like you and I have even discussed like fostering or adopting and at different points in our lives. And I feel like we come down to the same things, which is like, yeah, but what if that kid does something to one of our kids? Oh my gosh, you know, what would we possibly feel about ourselves that we brought this person into our lives on purpose right? and, you know, through no fault of our own or even the child's own, they've acted out in such a way that somehow brought harm to the other children already living here. It would be a really difficult decision to make. And I saw that they have scenes for next week. And as much as everybody was talking about, you know, for sure, it's going to be a boy that they adopt or foster even, it looks like it's going to be a girl. Yeah, they said a 12-year-old girl's ready to go, and they already show like a lot of strife and hair pulling and stuff Man, I can't even. Oh, I really hope that this ends positively for them, but I'm with you that you brought up in last episode. Like, we have already seen it done where you bring in someone who's got all this angst, and then, you know, some sort of smoothing happens, and suddenly this kid just falls in line with everyone else. Yeah. So I don't I'm wondering how they're going to play this out any differently than that. Yeah, I guess the obvious variation is she doesn't smooth out. It stays bad which would be kind of tragic to, to, to have introduced this this element into your family and have it become not less disruptive, but more. Exactly. I think that Randall's story brings up so many questions about nature versus nurture. You know, how much are you... Um, just born that way and how much are you raised that way and I think especially with Randall in that he shows so many qualities of Jack and then once we met William it was like oh he has so many qualities of William and it's like which which dad you know really influenced him more is it DNA or is it you know the way that he was raised every day of his life yeah it's a big question do you have any thoughts on nature and nurture? I know nurture is a big deal, but there's some amount of not being able to escape your own nature. Because we, I mean, you you were a teacher. You saw kids, you know, in pre-K that definitely, some of them were just waiting to be formed, but some of them definitely had something going on already. Like they had their own opinions and the way that they were going to do things and they were going to talk this way and they were definitely going to do go and do these things. Mm-hmm. You know, something else is informing that beyond just a couple of years they've been with their parents, I think. It's, it's so difficult to tell. And and because I do have such a, a lengthy experience with kiddos of, of all different walks of life from very young ages, I am very torn because I can say that I do have the ability within having a year with a kiddo to see that kid go from maybe a biting, hitting, you know, very upset little kid to being falling in line and being happy and helpful and learning. And so then that makes me feel like, well, you know, nurturing really matters. There's a lot to that. But you're right. There's kids that are very predisposed to having short tempers, you know, just like you said, like their opinion is the right, right. <laughs> it's the right way to go for sure. We might have a couple of those in our household. Say what? Paul says, what? <laughs> so last week we had the Jack's drunk again come to Jesus. And now this is the fallout week where there's talk about, well, he had kind of tried to cure himself before. And now this time he wants to be a little more transparent about how he's doing it. So can you tell me about that first time? Was that, was that first 
problem with alcoholism televised? I think it's ex- no this the the stuff that they showed us this time where he was like pouring alcohol into his his mug at work and stuff. Yeah. This was the first time we were seeing that. Okay, and definitely we were you know led to believe that he was doing okay. Um, you know, I think that there, if looking back, maybe maybe now we could rewatch and say, oh no, you know, look at that or look at this, and we might see some things. But at least as you were watching, it wasn't on my radar that he was actively having a problem with alcohol at all. Now, maybe other viewers would say, oh, it was so obvious you missed that thing. But for me, no. And this is part of the 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 thing about the show that is a little um, a little complex. How do we love a guy so much who is declared himself an alcoholic like over and over again within the show there's bad things that happen because of his drinking and yet again he's a saint he's a saint he's father of the year and it's like wow i mean i feel like you could put a lot of other people on paper and just change the name and list off things that went on with him and the person would be like no nah, i don't know that guy sounds like you know at the best an average dad or husband but there's something about I think the way that Milo plays him that we just are in love with him. Well, he's flawed and he's vulnerable, and especially in this episode. People never say that. Rebecca says things like, "Your father wasn't perfect, but he was as close as you could ever get." That's not your father was a flawed man with many things he worked through. Like people don't say that about him. His children don't see him as a flawed man. Maybe that's what the second season is for. I think absolutely. I'm a little dreading that to be honest with you because i think that it's going to peel back the curtain on his very difficult past they showed some little flashbacks of him being in vietnam and there had been a tiny nugget about that that we're all unsure now as the audience did he lie or did he not lie they showed in this flashback of him jumping out of a helicopter Uh but in a previous episode in season one he had told someone that he was a mechanic in the army Mechanics don't jump out of helicopters in the field. And sometimes people lie about their service because they don't want to get into it. Exactly. But then that makes us wonder, does he have some PTSD issues? Is there something that he saw that he doesn't want to talk about? Is Does that have some root in all of this alcoholism? Now, also, his father was an alcoholic. Certainly, you know, him having to deal with his dad, there was also moments about that. That reminded us like, oh, yeah, he's had kind of a tortured past. And, you know, maybe that's where a lot of this is coming from. Certainly, you know, when they showed work calling and him getting berated in the office, which by I believe it was Miguel, who was like his supervisor. Um, Him having to go deal with this, you know, punching the punching bag kind of release is like, Oh my gosh, you know, how stressed out is this man actually at his core? He's beyond flawed, right? I mean, he's got mm. like this really rough past. He's looks like maybe has some sort of PTSD mental portion of this. He has a, an addiction problem. He's not, I guess, like I said, on paper, he's not the guy you would say, oh, he's definitely Ward Cleaver. But at least in this episode, we've seen that he's done hiding. Still in our society, you do give credit to people that decide to make amends and move on and get and improve their life. And that is what we saw here. We saw two important things at the end of the episode. I know that one of them is very humiliating. And then the other one, I I imagine there's probably some element that you need to get over, which is the first one was admitting to Kate, the child version 
that he had a drinking problem and trying to just explain it in a rational kind of way to her and it's just not working and her she just grabs his face and 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 looks at him and then hugs him and and that's just like well really what else would you need your kid to do besides that because it's their way of saying i i understand dad it's it's going to be okay well and that's something that you need to know from season one and previous episodes that move of holding their face is a move that Jack did with Randall and is a move that Randall then did with William when William was dying. It's like a, it's like a, I see you, I'm like acknowledging you, I'm supporting you um, move that, that is like been within the family. Oh, okay. So that's a thing. I, I do want to talk a little bit about that, but I, I know you had a second point. So beyond having to talk to Kate, what was the second thing that you felt was like a difficult part for him? Rebecca drove him to to AA. It's clearly an AA meeting. Right. And uh and she waited to watch him go all the way in. Uh there's several ways you could read that. And I gotta think Rebecca's primary one is I'm making sure <laughs> you go in so there. So do you do you think that he was asking her for like accountability in that regard? Or do you think she took it upon herself like, no, I'm gonna be like the the guard on this and make sure you go in. So he asked her to be part of the recovery, right? I think he asked the whole family to be a part of the recovery. He asked Kate and the boys. Part of her own accountability on her end of it, I think, is making sure he goes in there. Going back, I want to talk about Kate and Jack's relationship. And what what do you think about it? What do you think about the idea that he has this hard time at work and his coworkers like, hey, do you want some liquid lunch? And he's like, no. And he drives to like the elementary school. Kate hops in the car and he has like a heart to heart with her. Is that all okay? What do do we think about this? Well, I can tell you at my school, you weren't allowed to get in someone's car, even if it was your parents, just in the middle of the day. Right. Beyond the rules of the school, what do you think about it as like, is this appropriate, healthy relationships between parents and children? I thought it was a little weird, but this seemed like extenuating circumstances, like he was kind of building up to this, how this, how the episode ended. And so he had to go through all this other stuff and him being able to come clean with Kate later probably depended on this scene, his kind of building up steam to yeah, it. And, and I do. And I agree with that. And there's some part of that about that. That's that makes a lot of sense. But I am a little I'm a little bit. You think it's too confused. close? Confused. I think if you have a problem at work, you better call me. If you call one of our children to talk about it. And get some reassurance. I think that that's probably uh, dicey. You know, like, I mean, you're an adult man. I don't quite know why you would need that assurance over an adult friend, an adult spouse, uh, you know, somebody else that was an adult. You know, we kind of use the the thing, adults don't need children. So if someone comes along and says, hey, I'm looking for my puppy. Have you seen it? I need your help. The answer is adults don't need help from children. They need help from other adults. So there is no reason why you should feel obligated to do anything about that. And so I kind of feel a little like, oh, I don't know that Jack should show up at her school with a problem. The only logic that I could see going into the concept of driving to your kid's school and talking to them before you talk to your spouse is just very weak sauce. You know, like you're a much easier person to talk to. (laughs) You're not going to 
blast me with judgment or whatever you think you're going to get from your spouse. But that's not really a good reason to go and do it. That's just a reason I could think of maybe as his motivation for doing it. I kind of feel like that both parents do that. Like I kind of think that Rebecca, you know, uses Randall as a source of comfort and, you know, for good or for bad. Jack certainly does it with Kate. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's 100% healthy. Maybe everything's totally on the level. And certainly if I'm having a bad day and I'll be like, you know, oh, I need extra hugs from the kids or something like that. But I mean, I can't think of one time when you have had something go wrong at work. You know, we've had all kinds of ups and downs at work where you would have confided in one of the children, you know, Right. Well, there's a, aside from, from all the stuff we just talked about, I mean, his, his problem was a problem at work, right? Which is something that your kids have no idea about, <laughs> right. you know, all they can do is just listen to you say whatever you're going to say, you know? So you aren't, you aren't going there looking for a way to move ahead with your problem, you know, cause you can't get one from them. You know? Right. So I don't know. It's a little dicey. It's something that I want to continue to watch and continue to have these flashback scenes and try to kind of piece together. I know that her relationship with her dad is very strong. You know, she seems to be the one that has his urn. Now, I don't know if the ashes were divvied up amongst the four of them, like Rebecca, Randall, Kevin, and her. I've only seen her have his urn. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what that means. Because again, Rebecca's alive. Why would Kate have Jack's ashes? So there's so much more story to tell. I don't want to be too judgy on this. I just want to say these are moments where my eyebrow kind of went, hmm, I really need a lot more backstory on like what was going on. Why, you know, why did it go this way? And and is this okay? Or is this family, you know, got a went a little off the rails in the way that they were handling their relationships? Because so far, I think that we give them a lot of praise for having these really healthy conversations, these dialogues, very open, lots of communication. But then when I see what the choices are, I'm like, oh, whoa, you know, am I allowed to back up the the train a little and be like, wait a minute, I'm not <laughs> sure that that conversation should have even been had even if it was a very touching, revealing conversation, I'm not sure that it should have happened. So I know that you learned some information concerning Jack's death and the scene that they shot at the end of the previous episode about the house. Very interesting. Yes, the production was so concerned about leaks and spoilers and that kind of stuff that they did something sort of unconventional, which was normally they would just shoot that on a back lot or something like that. For this, they wanted to keep it so secret that they said that they built that house like four hours away from LA or wherever it is they shoot and, you know, mocked it up to look like a fire and all that kind of stuff. But in all of the documentation that normally goes along with a film shoot, like call sheets and all that kind of stuff, This Is Us was never referred to and instead of calling it the fire, they called it the marble. I I love that element of movie making where the creators acknowledge that they have something that they really need to keep secret and they're willing to spend the money, even though it's inconvenient, to keep that secret because the, the whole story 
you know, revolves around getting this done exactly right. So I, I love when they do that. And I think that for us as audience members, it really sends home the message how much they care about how the information gets to us. They don't want us to read it in a magazine. They want us to watch it on the screen with the actor saying the words and the emotions the way that they intend it to happen. I have a lot of respect for that and think it's pretty amazing. I've been reading a lot about various This Is Us fans theories. And while people have a great deal of theories, I would say predominant ones are, you know, that Kate had this dog at the end of the last episode and that maybe the dog had been in the house and in trying to save Kate's dog, something happens with Jack. The second thing that I saw was that something about with Kevin's leg and the cast and the fact that he was MIA that evening, that maybe they thought he was still in the basement and that maybe Jack had run back in and was looking for him and couldn't find him and, you know, got killed in the fire, basically. Um, But the one that is like the most intriguing is this idea of the washing machine having caused the fire. Because if you guys haven't read that, get out there, put this is us washing machine theory. I won't go through the whole thing because there's some of you guys who do not want this much information. So I won't try to lay it all out for you, but by far it is getting the most traction, including there's a lot of claims that if you listen to the background sound of this past episode that we're discussing right now, There's like a chugga, chugga, chug kind of sound of a washing machine basin going Hmm. that some people said, oh, I thought that was the helicopter, like as if Jack was thinking of, you know, Nom or something. And other people are like, no, it's the sound of a washing machine. And so there's a lot of thinking that that there's there's a lot of foreshadowing going on. Now, we know in the past there was the, you know, the episode, the best washing machine in the world. And we've had a lot of conversation about that. Kevin yelled that this washing machine was possessed at one point. And, you know, there's just there's a lot of moving parts about this washing machine conversation. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like this isn't connected at all, but it reminds me of the final season of Mad Men, how in any time you could think of a, of a place to put a Coke can placement, yeah. they did yeah. throughout the whole season. And, and, and you just thought, no, they're just having Coke. Right. And then the way that the whole series ends up with Coke having always been Don Draper's dream account and him coming up with the catchiest ad campaign in the history of ad campaigns, all for Coke. It, it feels very purposeful and like you saw some... Like, you want to go back and see the whole thing again. I really you know? think like now that I've I've read this theory, I'm really eager to go back and read it again. I mean, some people said, and I, I haven't done my research on this, so I apologize, but I, I will put this out as your homework listener. If you go back to the previous episode and you look at the first scene, it's apparently like a zoom in on an outlet. Mm. And so apparently there's lots of drops like this along the way that if you pay attention. Now, I know that the showrunner has said that they gave out at least five major clues in this last episode. And most of us are only getting a couple at best. Yeah, that redheaded girl. (laughs) That's going to take a while. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I feel like there's, you know, there's little bits and pieces that we've seen along the way. But I think that, you know, I, I don't it's like part of me wants to know this washing machine concept and part of me doesn't want to know it at all. But I think that there's so many things to watch for along the way, especially things like that underlying using the sound 
Yeah, it's pretty as, innovative. As yeah. adding, you know, a layer into this into your like subconscious to start thinking about it and thinking about it that now it's like, okay, now I, I feel comfortable really talking about this because I feel like, you know, we've all been let in on this secret now. It's not a matter of just what you saw, but like they put it throughout. So this is super interesting. I'm really looking forward till next week. Who do you think we will be focusing on next week? I believe we'll be looking mainly at Randall's family. I'm going to cheat and cite the preview as next week, the foster placement or whatever you want to call it uh, takes place. And so I bet that that's the headline is, is this, this person coming to live with them. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com, that's D-A-L-E-Y review.com, Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.